welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. So let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the trauma module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And today I have Ben Finlay joining me again to talk about neck trauma. And we're going to talk about both blunt and penetrating neck trauma on today's episode. So we're going to start today's episode talking about blunt neck trauma, and this is specifically termed blunt cerebrovascular injuries. Blunt cerebrovascular injuries are a type of non-penetrating injury to the carotid or vertebral arteries. And the pathophysiology of this condition is thought to be stretching or impingement of the vessel wall as the head and neck are forcefully moved in flexion extension or rotation. And this causes intimal tears and exposure of the subintimal layers to blood flow and consequently thrombus formation, which can partially or completely occlude the lumen of the vessel, dissections in the vessel wall, pseudoaneurysms, a complete occlusion of the vessel, or transection of the vessel. And the sequelae of this process is that patients can experience strokes due to embolism from the injury or complete occlusion of the vessel. In the context of blunt trauma, the incidence of these injuries is relatively rare. About 1% to 2% of blunt traumatic injuries will have a cerebrovascular injury. But the risk of this occurring is much higher in patients who have concomitant head trauma or significant cervical spinal injuries. So Ben, did you want to tell us a little bit about the grading of blunt cerebrovascular injuries? So the grading of blunt cerebrovascular injury is as per the Denver grading system, and this is a consensus-based guideline and grading system, obviously out of Denver. So it grades blunt cerebrovascular injuries into five grades. Grade one is an intimal irregularity or dissection with less than 25% of luminal narrowing. Grade two is a dissectional intramural hematoma of more than 25% luminal narrowing, intraluminal clot, or visible intimal flap. A grade three is a pseudoaneurysm or a hemodynamically insignificant AV fistula. Grade four is a complete vessel occlusion, and grade five is a transection of the vessel or a hemodynamically significant fistula. And I think the practical application of this is that the grading of the injury dictates the treatment that uh, you'll undertake. I think this grading system is a little bit confusing for me. I would have thought that pseudoaneurysm and then transection and bleeding would go together, but it actually pseudoaneurysm and then occlusion and then transection with extravasation. So do you want to keep talking about the Denver criteria and talk to us a little bit about the screening system that's used for detecting blunt cerebrovascular injuries? So the Denver criteria outline signs and symptoms of blunt cerebrovascular injury. Now that should prompt further investigation. And the investigation of choice in blunt cerebrovascular injury is a multi-slice CT angiogram. So the signs and symptoms that might suggest blunt cerebrovascular injury are potential arterial hemorrhage from the neck, nose or mouth, an expanding neck hematoma, a cervical brewy in a patient less than 50 years old, focal neurological deficit that may indicate an ischemic injury to the brain, 
or a Horner's syndrome, stroke seen on imaging, or a neurologic deficit inconsistent with the patient's head CT. And these patients should proceed to having a CT angiogram of the head and neck. Should also have a low threshold for performing a CTA in patients with other risk factors for blunt cerebrovascular injury, such as those who've been subject to a high energy neck trauma, who have displaced facial fractures, mandibular fractures, complex base of skull fractures, a severe traumatic brain injury with a deep uh, GCS less than six, cervical spine fractures, a near hanging with hypoxic brain injury, a clothesline type injury or a seatbelt sign on the neck, significant scalp degloving, significant chest, upper rib or abdominal injuries. And again, these patients uh, should undergo a CT angiogram of the neck. Great. So just to summarise, the Denver criteria are a screening criteria of signs and symptoms or risk factors that if you screen patients and apply those screening criteria to doing a CT angiogram, it makes it much more likely you're going to pick up a blunt cerebrovascular injury. Personally, the injuries I've come across most commonly that fit this criteria are significant seatbelt signs on the neck. And often the CT trauma scan doesn't include a dedicated CT neck angiogram. It's a thoracic arterial angiogram imaging on the CT. So often I'll actually have to send those patients back for a second scan in order to do a dedicated neck imaging. So if we apply these criteria and we do our CT scan and we see one of those injuries, we obviously have to think about what we're going to do to manage them. And the consequences of an untreated blunt cerebrovascular injury is that patients may develop neurological signs consistent with a stroke. In general, the treatment can be medical, interventional or surgical. Medical treatment can include treatment with antiplatelets or heparin. For these patients, I'd be involving the neurology team for some advice, and usually I would take their advice about which of the two to give to the patients. If they do choose to give heparin, you'll need to be mindful that you'll have to transition that patient onto something like warfarin at some point during or after their admission. And you want to give this for at least three months duration. And the other relevant thing to think about is that in a patient with blunt cerebrovascular injuries, they may have other concomitant injuries such as neurological trauma and bleeding where anticoagulation may be contraindicated. So you need to balance the risks of anticoagulation or antiplatelets with the risk of bleeding in these patients. Aspirin or heparin can be used in patients with grade 1, grade 2 or grade 4 injuries. But patients with pseudoaneurysms, so grade 3 injuries, or transections with grade 5 injuries are less likely to be successfully managed with simple medical treatment. So other options for them, obviously, if they're hemodynamically unstable with a rapidly expanding hematoma, they may go straight to surgery and have operative repair of the injured vessel. But they can also have endovascular assessment and stenting. In terms of a patient with a grade three or five injury, stenting isn't that controversial, like you're doing something to treat the problem. But there has been some discussion about using stenting as a preventative for developing a complication in patients with grade one, two or four injuries. And that's a little bit more controversial. And the 
pretty poor studies that exist out there haven't really shown a benefit to prophylactic stenting in patients who don't have any neurological symptoms. Um, So in those guidelines, it's not recommended to be done routinely. And in patients who are managed with medical management, you're going to organize some surveillance or follow-up for these patients. And the guidelines suggest re-imaging them at a week and then at three months to assess the injury. And that will also help guide whether or not you need to continue the medical management. In general, small intimal tears have a natural history of resolution. Um, So often the period of medical treatment for these is only brief. However, uh, more significant vessel dissections or uh, if there's a visible intimal flap, these often progress. So the interval imaging in a week is important and may prompt uh, further intervention. At my institution, we involve the vascular surgeons or interventional neuroradiologists to help us manage these patients because it's not an injury that's common and commonly managed by us. So moving on now to penetrating neck injuries, we don't see these as commonly in Australia because we have a lot of blunt trauma, but they do comprise approximately 5 to 10% of traumatic injuries with mortality rates of up to 10%. Penetrating neck injuries are defined as those that penetrate the platysma. So those that don't penetrate the platysma don't require exploration and we're not really talking about those today. And the most common causative mechanisms for penetrating neck injuries are gunshot and stab wounds. So with the initial management of a penetrating neck injury, obviously we're going to proceed with our primary survey. Starting with A and securing the airway, this can be difficult in a penetrating neck injury if there is a significant hematoma and it's important to have an experienced anaesthetist or emergency doctor, preferably managing the airway and it would be a good idea to try and secure that early. Along with A, we need to make sure the C-spine is uh, stabilised and consider stopping any significant external haemorrhage. And the chance of a vascular injury with penetrating neck trauma is significant, so external compression of this should be performed early. If there's a patient who's bled a lot at the scene, but when they arrive, there's no obvious external bleeding, one thing you really don't want to do is to probe the tract because you may dislodge a clot and start the bleeding again. The other thing that can be especially effective um, in zone one injuries, and we're about to talk about the zones, is if you can't control it with digital pressure, is using a Foley catheter and blowing up the balloon and then pulling back to try to tamponade um, a vessel. Even two Foley catheters in the same hole if one doesn't work. If one's not enough, try another. That's right. Well, completing the primary survey, a patient may have compromised breathing from a low neck penetrating injury. They could have a pneumothorax, so do keep that in the back of your mind. Also with circulation, there's a chance of a significant uh, chest or neck major vessel injury. So our hemostatic resuscitation, as discussed prior, comes into play here. When evaluating disability, keep in mind that a vessel injury in the neck may cause a neurological deficit, so a a neurological examination is important, and examine the pupils and face looking for evidence of a Horner's syndrome. And exposure, of course, comes into play where we need to examine the neck uh, thoroughly looking for entry and exit wounds or, or evidence of hard and soft signs. Let's 
let's talk about the hard and soft signs of vascular and aerodigestive tract injuries in the neck. And then also we'll talk a little bit about the zones of the neck. So let's talk about hard signs and soft signs. These are what we're looking for in examination when we're evaluating a patient with a uh, neck injury. And these can help us stratify our approach going forward as to the patient's management. So if we're thinking about hard signs, we could divide these into vascular, esophageal and tracheal. And we're looking for anything on examination that will indicate a very high likelihood of injury to these structures. So in terms of vascular injury, there's six hard signs. These are a pulsatile or expanding hematoma, absent or decreased pulse, brewy or thrill, severe hemorrhage, shock refractory to resuscitation, or a neurological deficit consistent with stroke. For esophageal injury, significant hematemesis indicates a high likelihood of injury to the esophagus. And with regards to the trachea, we're looking for significant hemoptysis, respiratory distress, air bubbling through the wound, or severe subcutaneous emphysema. Soft signs of injury may be a stable hematoma, a hoarse voice, dysphagia, mild subcutaneous emphysema, or minor hematemesis or hemoptysis. So that's a great summary of the signs of vascular, esophageal, or respiratory injuries. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the zones of the neck. So in trauma, they talk about the zones of the neck, and there's three zones. And don't do what I did and get this wrong, like I did this week in emergency, which was very embarrassing, where I thought the zones went from top to bottom. They don't. They start low. So a zone one injury is low in the neck, and it's the region between the sternal notch to the lower border of the cricoid cartilage. Zone two is between the cricoid cartilage and the angle of the mandible. And zone three is the region above the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull. And this is kind of that smallish space behind the angle of the mandible between the ear. So now we've talked about both hard and soft signs of injuries and the zones of the neck. Let's talk about management and why these two things are important in making decisions about what you're going to actually do for that patient. So management depends on a few things, the stability of the patient. So in general, in trauma, if you have a really unstable patient, you're going to take them straight to the operating theater to deal with the problems you've identified. For penetrating neck trauma specifically, it also depends on whether or not they've got any hard or soft signs of vascular tracheal or esophageal injury. If you have any hard signs, again, you're probably going to go straight to the operating room because you know you need to explore that patient's neck and you need to deal with the injury that you have. There's a little bit of a grey zone if there's other injuries going on. You may want to gather more information about that in a stable patient, but I think in the exam you'd say you'd go straight to theatre if they had hard signs of vascular esophageal or tracheal injuries. And then the next thing that the management depends on are those zones of injury that we mentioned, so zone one, two, or three. And another thing to consider is also the mechanism of injury. So there's a much higher likelihood of having a injury to a major structure in the neck in high energy in injuries like gunshots than there are over stabbings or other injuries. 
So first off, priorities are EMST principles, as we've talked about, controlling the airway, controlling the bleeding, and then deciding on your next steps. Indications for surgical exploration are an unstable patient or hard signs of vascular or aerodigestive injuries. If you don't have any of those signs, then there's basically two schools of thoughts for management. So one group thinks that there should be selective management of penetrating neck trauma based on the zone of injury. And the other management algorithm is called the no zone approach to penetrating neck trauma. And this approach is that patients should be treated based on their stability and whether there's any hard signs and those patients should go to theatre. But in the absence of those two things, that you would do imaging and then plan your approach, that you wouldn't mandatorily explore zone two, which is what is advocated for in the zonal approach to penetrating neck trauma. Yeah, the whole concept of zonal-based management of neck trauma came down to the chance of something being injured and what we could do about that in surgery. So the traditional dogma of management of penetrating neck trauma was that any zone to injury should be explored in theatre regardless of what the patient uh, is looking like. And zone one and zone three, because they're more difficult, we would consider more carefully taking them directly to theatre. But the concept of no zone management of neck trauma has emerged with the increased accessibility of cross-sectional imaging, in particular CTA, and the realisation that if we're looking at where the entry wound goes uh, with regards to the zone of the neck, that may give us an indication of what's likely to be injured, but that a very long knife can certainly cross zones and a bullet doesn't, uh, if it goes in at zone two, it doesn't necessarily exit in that, in that region. So doing away with the zones and just looking at the patient their examination, uh, and then going from there provides a more pragmatic and useful approach. Mm. And I think with the zonal management, so all penetrating zone two neck injuries going to theatre, they found they had quite high rates of negative exploration. Yes. So they take the patient to theatre, do a big cut, and they wouldn't actually find any injuries. So I think that's the other reason the no zone approach is gaining popularity. And I think this is definitely examinable now because there have been a couple of publications in the ANZ Journal of Surgery about the no zone approach um, over the last few years. And definitely Royal Melbourne um, trauma team have published on that. So I think it's good to know about both approaches for the exam. So as we mentioned, the zonal management strategy is that all zone two injuries are straight to theatre. You're going to explore operatively. For zone one and zone three injuries, because the operative access is much more difficult, so zone one injuries are often associated with subclavian vessel injuries, which are very difficult to expose, as we'll talk about later in this episode. And zone three injuries, we're talking about base of skull vessels and maybe even vessels that if they've been transected have retracted up um, through the base of the skull, very difficult to access. These patients were much more selectively explored and they would go and have scans and be managed with endovascular or other techniques if possible. With the no zone approach and the widespread availability of good CT angiogram that has good sensitivity and specificity for identifying injuries in the neck and ruling out injuries that require surgery, the management algorithm is more that if the patient's unstable or has hard signs of a vascular or digestive tract injury, they go directly to exploration. But if they have soft signs or no signs of an injury, then they go to CT angiogram. And only if it's positive would you then either manage operatively or endovascularly, depending on what you find. 
What would you do about the patient who has no signs on their neck? If a patient has no signs on their neck, but they have a penetrating neck injury that's breaching the platysma, I would organize a CT angiogram of the head, neck and chest. I think it has a really high sensitivity for picking up injuries in this area. I think that's reasonable, particularly in Australia, where we don't see a lot of uh, these injuries. And uh, that's certainly what I'm going to say and and what I do. But in high volume trauma centres in America, they do advocate just observing these patients and then imaging if anything changes in the absence of other injuries. Mm. The other thing that's mentioned in the curriculum are principles of pharyngoscopy, esophagoscopy and bronchoscopy. In the olden days, before they had good CT scans, patients used to get a four-vessel angiogram and a gastroscopy and a bronchoscopy to evaluate for neck injuries. I guess these are adjuncts we could use. So if you're worried about a missed esophageal injury, if you had some gas in the neck, you could do a gastroscopy. And if you're worried about an airway issue, you could do laryngoscopy or bronchoscopy to investigate that further. Yeah, definitely. It's absolutely not perfect. So we need to have those things up our sleeve and Contrast swallow as well for esophageal injuries. It can be useful. So we've talked a little bit about some of the overarching principles of management of neck trauma, but unfortunately for us in the curriculum, there's quite a few operative does and operative knows for neck trauma. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking through these. And I guess for the operative does, we need to know pretty much how we would do the procedure. And for the operative knows, we need to know about the principles of management. So we're going to go through that next. So shall we discuss surgical airways? So in the emergency setting, a surgical airway is indicated in the can't intubate, can't ventilate scenario. And this is common in patients with significant neck injuries or craniofacial injuries. Contraindications for cricothyroidotomy may include a very young patient or a patient who's so injured that you can't palpate uh, landmarks in their neck. So if we're talking about preparation for the procedure, usually there's not a lot of time to prepare and most emergency departments will have a surgical airway kit close by. You may be the one doing it or you may be assisting uh, someone else. So the principles are that whatever uh, aseptic equipment you can obtain should be utilised and that may be a quick uh, prep of the neck and some sterile gloves. The skin over the anterior neck is very mobile so it's important to uh, mobilise the skin and the larynx with your non-dominant hand. The patient should be positioned uh, with their neck extended as much as possible but again that may be difficult in the emergency scenario. My approach is to make a two to three centimeter midline vertical skin incision centered over the cricothyroid membrane which should be palpable and by making a midline incision you avoid the anterior jugular veins and bleeding from those then continue dissecting sharply to the cricothyroid membrane and pierce this with my scalpel. I'd use a artery clip or similar clamp to insert it into the cricothyroid membrane and dilate and then place a a small ET tube of size five or six directly into the airway. It may be useful to place a bougie through this hole uh, in the first instance. 
then you can commence ventilating the patient. Fantastic. And is this the definitive surgical airway or are you going to run us through how to perform a surgical airway or a tracheostomy? Well, this gets you out of trouble, but shouldn't be left in place for a long time. So a definitive tracheostomy should be performed at the earliest appropriate time. Tracheostomy can be performed open or percutaneous. I don't know about you, Amanda, I haven't had a lot of experience with percutaneous tracheas. They seem to be done by the ICU physicians mostly, but there's still certainly indications for surgical tracheostomy despite the advent of percutaneous trachea. Just for interest sake, percutaneous trachea is done under bronchoscopic visualisation. So a bronchoscope is placed into the proximal trachea, landmarks are palpated, and then a needle is introduced under bronchoscopic vision into the trachea. And then essentially using a Seldinger technique, the tract is dilated uh, and a tracheostomy is placed. Surgical tracheostomy is a procedure more familiar to me. I've done a couple, but I think a lot of it falls back onto the principles of thyroid surgery, which most of us have had a lot more exposure to. Preparation for the procedure should be similar for as for a thyroid operation. So you want the patient under general anesthesia and you want to make sure you have all of your equipment ready. For general surgery trainees, that's a little bit daunting, I think. We don't have a lot of exposure to tracheostomy equipment uh, and they use all sorts of different terms, like they're all, they seem to be called shyly tubes. I don't really know what, what they are. There's cuffed and uncuffed. I think essentially you want a small cuffed tube for the first insertion. You want to make sure that you've got a plan with your anaesthetist and there is a risk of losing the airway through the surgical tracheostomy procedure. So you need to um, talk through the plan with them prior to commencing the operation. With regard to patient positioning, the position supine with the arms tucked if possible and neck extended, prep and drape in the standard fashion and I find it useful to mark the midline. I make a transverse collar incision approximately two finger breadths above the sternal notch and incise the skin and subcutaneous tissues down to platysma and develop subplatysmal flaps in the same way I would for a thyroid operation. I then open the, I then open the strap muscles in the midline uh, and expose the thyroid. You want to be making your tracheostomy in the region of the second and third tracheal rings and this is a right where the isthmus of the thyroid is. So your next step should be to divide the isthmus with diathermy or an energy device. When I've done these, I place stay sutures just lateral to the midline of the trachea and that gives you something to grab onto and makes me feel more confident when I'm going to secure the airway. I then use a knife to incise the trachea sharply. You shouldn't use diathermy because of the risk of combustion when ventilating a patient with oxygen. And then the next step is to communicate with your anaesthetist and then as they withdraw the endotracheal tube, you can insert your uh, tracheostomy tube into the trachea. Have you ever done a Bjork flap? I haven't, but why don't you tell us what that is? Yeah, so a Bjork flap is where you've done your transverse incision in the trachea and you extend down either side, inferiorly along the trachea, down another couple of rings. So then you have a little square-based flap with the bottom or inferior aspect still 
attached and you can suture the top of that flap to the skin with dissolving sutures. So if the tracheostomy slips out, you've got a better tract in order to slide it back in. I've never seen that done, but I've heard of it described. The thing that I've read about that is that it makes the chances of the tracheostomy healing spontaneously lower if it's removed. Uh, often needs a, an operation to close the tracheal defect. So that may be a consideration in a trauma situation. The other thing I don't understand about tracheostomy is you're basically not sterile at the point that the anaesthetist hands you the tubing to attach onto the new trachea tube, but they sort of just ignore that and finish the operation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so once you've got your tube in, make sure you've got hemostasis. Most surgeons then suture the tube to the skin, close the incision with interrupted sutures and uh, secure the tube also with, a, with an extract. Do you want to tell us about complications of tracheostomy? So complications of tracheostomy include immediate and late complications. So immediate complications could be losing the airway, as you've mentioned, bleeding through the superficial veins or um, vessels. You can get small arterial leisure vessels in the anterior aspect of the trachea or from the isthmus of the thyroid. You could get a leak of air causing subcutaneous emphysema after the procedure um, or the tube falling out. And then late complications, as you said, you could have a lack of spontaneous closure or healing of the tracheostomy once it's removed, requiring surgical repair. You could get infection and obviously scarring. The potential serious complications of tracheostomy long-term are life-threatening bleeding. So the tube can erode into large veins, particularly if you place it low in the neck and they have a high innominate vein. Um, so that can present with bleeding from the stoma site somewhat of a herald bleed just prior to life-threatening hemorrhage. In the situation that you do encounter that, the described manoeuvre is to insert a gloved finger into the tracheostomy stoma and uh, occlude the vessel against the sternum and call for help. Other serious potential long-term complications are tracheoesophageal fistula or tracheal stenosis. So let's talk a little bit more about surgery, given we're talking about penetrating neck trauma. Some basic operative principles for an operation on the neck you've sort of talked about, but having the patient position supine with both arms tucked, head on a head ring and a shoulder roll in order to extend the neck. And then for neck trauma as well, they talk about turning the head of the patient away from the side of the injury. And you also want to prep all the way from above the angle of the mandible, include the shoulder and the chest, entire chest, because you don't know what injuries you're going to find and you're going to drape widely. That's exactly right, because we, we could have to go on and do a thoracotomy or even harvest vein from somewhere. So it may be useful to have an arm or leg prepped and draped in case vein needs to be harvested. In the operative nose section for neck trauma, they talk about a number of different things, which I think we could probably just touch on some of the principles of, given it's in the nose and not does section. So they talk about access and vascular control in both zone one, zone two, and zone three. So let's just talk in general to start with about neck exploration. In terms of neck exploration, there's a number of different potential incisions that they talk about. The one that I've seen most frequently is a long incision along the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid. And the benefits of that incision is that you can lengthen it both proximally and distally. You can add in a lateral or a medial 
incision, and it can also be extended down into a stenotomy. So it can give you pretty wide access to most of the problems that you might find. Some of the other incisions I've seen written about include an anterior border of stenocleidomastoid combined with a collar incision and then going up the other side. That's quite morbid though, um, and you can get flat necrosis, so that's something to think about. And then a collar incision really doesn't have much of a role in neck trauma. It doesn't give you wide enough access and you can't get sort of high enough into zone three injuries, so it's not really recommended. I think as an adjunct to our discussion, I'd recommend everyone uh, read the chapter in Top Knife about neck exploration, aptly described as a safari in tiger country. <laughs> I think it gives some really good practical tips uh, and useful pointers for this process. So should we start with zone one exploration? Zone one, I think, is definitely tiger country. I mean, they're all tiger country, but zone one I feel the most worried about because of its association with subclavian vessel injuries. And the main issue with subclavian vessel injuries is that they're notoriously difficult to access because of their location behind the clavicles. So there's a really excellent video by a trauma surgeon from LA called Kenji Enaba, and he's got a fantastic talk on the Arizona Trauma website where he talks about neck injuries and subclavian injuries and how he manages them, and I'd recommend that to everyone as well. We'll put the link in the show notes. Sounds good. Um, this is the one where a Foley catheter can be quite helpful, and he has some good videos of the Foley catheter controlling bleeding. And the idea is you actually put it through the tract, almost down into the chest, blow the balloon up, and then pull back so you get traction of the subclavian vessels against the clavicle uh, to help control bleeding um, while you're on the way to the operating theatre. So in general for zone 1 injuries, if you have hard signs of vascular injury, uncontrollable hemorrhage or hemodynamically unstable patient, you're going to take them to theatre. You don't know exactly what the injury is going to be in these situations. You haven't done your CT scan. So in the exam in this situation, my incision of choice is going to be a median stenotomy for a zone one injury because this is where I'm going to get best access to the origin of the subclavian vessels and all of the major vessels in the chest and I'll be able to get proximal control. And the median stenotomy can be then extended into a supraclavicular incision for distal control if required. If there are no hard signs and they're hemodynamically stable, then you would go to CTA and you hopefully would get some indication about where the issue is before you go to the operating theatre. If you can control bleeding angiographically, it would be fantastic if possible, so you don't have to uh, give the patient a stenotomy. But obviously, if you have a patient who's uh, unstable, you've got significant contrast extravasation, or it's not a location where it can be controlled endovascularly, then you may need to go to theatre. And your choice of incision or access really depends on the site of the injury. For right-sided great vessels, so subclavian and dominant vessels, you're going to be doing a median stenotomy and doing a supraclavicular extension. For left-sided, it's a little controversial. So in the DSTC course, they talk about a left anterolateral thoracotomy because the left subclavian vessels are lower. But Kenji Anaba in his video talks about there not being any difference really and that you could just do a stenotomy and a supraclavicular extension for left-sided injuries i don't know exactly what i would say in the exam yeah there's a lot of discussion about this and you know there's talks about trapdoor thoracotomies which apparently is a very morbid incision stenotomies i think 
What seems like a sensible approach to me is always starting with that anterior steticlidomastoid incision for the neck. Then it's easy to extend that down to a median stenotomy and also along the clavicle to remove the clavicle if you need to get to the subclavian vessels there. And then in terms of more distal injuries, your proximal control may be above the clavicle with a supraclavicular incision. And then for distal control for axillary vessel or distal subclavian, you may need to do an infraclavicular incision, which can then be extended down the arm if required for axillary control. In order to access the subclavian vessel above the clavicle, you do need to excise the supraclavicular fat pad, which is pretty constant uh, fat pad, even in really skinny individuals. And this fat pad contains a number of small blood vessels, lymph nodes, and the thoracic duct. So you have to be quite careful when you're excising this. And this will bring you down onto scalenus anterior, which obviously has the phrenic nerve running from lateral to medial across the anterior aspect of. So you need to preserve the phrenic nerve and divide scalenus anterior in order to gain access to the subclavian artery, which is sitting behind it. All of that sounds very scary to me and also probably more scary by the fact that you've got a hemodynamically unstable sick patient who's bleeding. So I think it's definitely worth uh, watching some videos of those accesses. And if you can do the DSTC course, you get to do that on a cadaver and also they uh, have some really good videos that go with the course of how to uh, get that access to the subclavian vessels. In terms of definitive repair, you may need to divide the clavicle uh, in order to access the whole vessel, or if you can get distal control with an infraclavicular incision, you can tunnel a graft underneath the clavicle. I think in my hands, I'd probably be dividing the clavicle in order to gain that access. And in order to do that, you have to divide all of the muscles off the anterior and inferior surface of the clavicle um, and then use a jiggly saw to divide it. And then you just sort of dislocate the sternoclavicular head and rotate the clavicle up and out of the way. And then you can reattach it once you've fixed your vessel. In terms of zone one injuries, other things that you might come across are internal jugular vein injuries. And they say if possible to repair them, you should try and repair them. But if they're severely injured and there's a lot of tissue loss, then you can ligate the internal jugular vein. Vertebral artery injuries are pretty uncommonly found at surgical exploration because it dives quite quickly into the vertebral canal and is difficult to access surgically. You can ligate it at its origin off the subclavian artery if you need to, or it can be angioembolized. Another thing that's described for vertebral artery injuries to temporize them is using bone wax to pack the space between the cervical vertebra and then um, post-op you can get the patient embolized. Oh, that's a good tip. I didn't know that one. And then carotid artery injuries are the other thing that we may come across in any zone injury and this is specifically mentioned in our operative nose for neck trauma so in zone one in order to access the carotid artery you usually have to mobilize the sternocleidomastoid laterally and you can divide the clavicular head of the sternocleidomastoid in order to give yourself better access lower down in the neck and then you have to divide the omohyoid muscle at the junction between its superior and inferior bellies in terms of repairing a carotid artery injury, options include direct suture repair once you have proximal and distal control. You can also do a graft, and the options for that include a saphenous vein patch, a prosthetic graft, or an external bypass, but I think that would be more in the role of the vascular surgeons. 
And in DSTC for damage control, they talk about shunting vessels, uh, which we do in the course where you can either use specific vascular shunts if they're available to you, or you can use um, pieces of uh, chest drains or feeding tubes um, that are the appropriate size. And they say to use a tube that's about 50% of the lumen of the vessel that you're shunting. And you basically put a little tie around the vessel and leave an end long so that it doesn't whip off in the um, vessel and you lose it. And then you put one end in either end of the divided vessel and use a tie to tie it in place in order for the flow to be going through your shunt. And that's a temporizing measure before you can bring them back for their definitive repair. From what I've seen in elective carotid surgery and, and a bit of reading around this, carotids seem to be relatively unforgiving. So I think for an inexperienced surgeon, a shunt is always a good idea. But if we're looking at a repair of a carotid injury, patch seems to be the way to go. I'm going to say I use a bovine pericardium patch because that's what I've seen used in elective carotid surgery most commonly. What are you going to sew it on with? I'd use a 5.0 or 6.0 double-ended proline. So if we're talking about surgical exploration of zone 2, as Amanda's already talked about, what we're going to say in the exam is that we use an anterior sternocleidomastoid approach. And this is what's familiar to me from um, my upper GI experience. So what I'm going to do is make a longitudinal incision along the anterior border of sternocleidomastoid. It can extend all the way from the mastoid process down to the clavicle, but usually doesn't need to be that long. Going to deepen the incision through subcutaneous tissue and incise platysma to take me onto the muscle. And the key thing is to keep retracting things laterally. So what you want to do is retract sternocleidomastoid laterally, and that's going to take you onto the internal jugular vein. By exposing the internal jugular vein, which is the most commonly injured vascular structure in zone 2, you can uh, repair whatever you find there and then keep going. The next landmark is the facial vein, which dives off the uh, anterior border of the internal jugular vein, and that's your landmark for the carotid bifurcation and needs to be ligated and divided to take you to the carotid artery. Some patients do have multiple small veins rather than a, a single trunk of a facial vein, so they all need to be secured. It's also useful to be using a self-rotating retractor throughout this process and, and just deepening it as you're dividing and, and going deeper to keep your exposure appropriate. So once you divide the facial vein and retract the internal jugular vein laterally, you should have the carotid artery exposed which you should be able to then evaluate for any injury and repair or shunt as we've previously described. When you're looking at the carotid artery and the internal jugular vein, you need to be mindful of the vagus nerve, which will be running in the carotid sheath. How would you assess for a aerodigestive tract injury? So aerodigestive tract injuries can be evaluated by either going in front of or behind the carotid sheath. And I think for us general surgery trainees who have some exposure to, to the thyroid surgery, uh, and if we're already at the carotid, by just continuing to go over the carotid, it's going to take us to the central compartment of the neck where the thyroid is. And, and that's a familiar territory for us to explore the esophagus and trachea. 
So in order to get to the central compartment of the neck, there's three things that you need to divide medial to the carotid artery, and that's homohyoid, the inferior thyroid artery, and the middle thyroid vein on that side. And that should take you to the space lateral to the thyroid where you can look to evaluate the trachea and the esophagus. And if you had an esophageal injury, how would you go about repairing that? So my repair of an esophageal injury would be, as we've previously discussed in the um, esophageal, as you've previously discussed in the esophageal module of the curriculum, the principles are to mobilize the esophagus as appropriate. And I think if you're finding uh, injury to the esophagus on one side, it is important to consider that there could be a through and through injury to the esophagus. So if you're exploring through the left side of the neck, you need to think about whether or not you need to open the other side of the neck to explore the esophagus or or put a gastroscope down and evaluate uh, what's going on. It's important not to miss a second esophageal injury. Once the uh, esophageal injury has been identified, it's important to define it fully, and that involves opening the muscular layer of the esophagus to expose the mucosal injury. After debriding them appropriately, repair the mucosal mucosa and then the muscle with uh, interrupted 3OPDS sutures and try and buttress that with any healthy tissue around the area. And I think in the trauma situation, I'd always consider leaving a drain. Mm. And I guess also considering distal feeding options, so whether you're going to place a feeding nasogastric tube at the time. Definitely. They also talk about repair of tracheal injuries, uh, which I've never done, but looking it up, they say to repair in just a single layer with an absorbable suture. You can also buttress these repairs with a muscle flap or piece of fascia, and you would also always leave a drain in these situations in case of an air leak. So that leads us to zone three, which Ben has lovingly left for me to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so zone three is a difficult area to access. It's definitely tiger country. There are a lot of structures here, which you need to be mindful of. It's also difficult to access because the mandible's in the way. So they talk about preparation if you need to do a zone three exploration. So having a naso tracheal intubation if possible rather than orotracheal because the orotracheal does open the mouth slightly which decreases your space you can also divide the sternocleidomastoid muscle at the uh, mastoid if required for extra exposure but you need to be mindful of the accessory nerve which is going to enter into the sternocleidomastoid about three centimeters distal to that and also you can use a langenbeck retractor on the mandible and pull that anteriorly to open up the space so you can even actually um, dislocate the mandible or divide the mandible in order to get you increased access. So the fact that all of those maneuvers are described makes me think it's not a very big space and it's difficult to explore. So your access is similar to what Ben has described for a zone two, an anterior sternocleidomastoid incision. You need to ligate the middle thyroid and the common facial veins retract the sternocleidomastoid muscle and internal jugular laterally and you're going to be careful of the vagus nerve in the carotid sheath. So then you come down onto the carotid artery and you start following that up superiorly. You need to be careful of the occipital artery and the inferior branches of the ansa cervicalis which you're going to come across and they can actually both be divided. 
Then you're going to come across the posterior belly of the digastrix muscle, which you also need to divide in order to fully expose zone three. But the hypoglossal nerve is going to run across the artery at this level, either behind the posterior belly of digastric or just below it. So you need to make sure that you don't injure the hypoglossal nerve. And so you can mobilize that out of your way. And once you've divided the posterior belly of the digastric, you should have full access to the carotid bifurcation. And you can then follow the artery uh, superiorly up until the base of the skull. You get to do this dissection actually in the DSTC course, which is really good and see all of these structures, but it is a a really difficult area to explore. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have a um, arterial injury, then that can spring up into the base of skull and be very difficult to control. So what are your options for control of bleeding in this zone? So you can use a Fogarty um, catheter and put that up into the base of skull and open up the balloon and try to get proximal control. And that completes this episode on blunt and penetrating neck trauma. I hope you learned something. Please join me in thanking Ben for coming on the program again. It's so nice to have someone else to talk to. And he's obviously really got some great experience and knowledge to share with us. I'm definitely learning a lot from him and I hope you are too. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. It makes it easier for others to find the podcast. And we do love reading your reviews. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!